If you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Romans 5. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 8 tonight. It's a great honor and privilege to have you join with us as we look at God's word and think about God's love displayed in God's Son on the cross. Within each of the four Gospels, the four records of Jesus' life included in the New Testament, there are the horrible details of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There's details like the kiss of Jesus' betrayer, Judas, his disciples disowning him, the slander and the lies that Jesus went, went through, the sham trials, Jesus being spit upon, him being blindfolded and beaten, taunted to prophesy who it was who had hit him. There's details like the fact that a death row terrorist was released instead of him. The shouts of crucify him ringing out, the death sentence handed to him, the horrible flesh-tearing flogging he went through, how he carried his own cross just as he had called his disciples. The crown of thorns, the mock worship, Jesus being undressed and games played with his clothes, the skin-piercing nails and the hammer blows, the pained breaths that followed crucifixion, the verbal abuse, the mockery, the taunting, even from those who were crucified along with him, and then darkness. So finally, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read in each gospel the horrifying details of Jesus's death, including the, catechis the cataclysmic upheaval that also took place, like the sun being blotted out in darkness for three hours or how the earth quaked after Jesus' final breath. And as we read the Gospels' accounts, we're aware that something else is going on besides injustice. There's a supernatural and drama, drama unfolding before our eyes. In Mark 15, 39, one of the soldiers, one of the Roman soldiers, a, a centurion who was standing right in front of him, saw the way Jesus breathed his last, not that he, he, he just died, but that he gave up his breath. And the centurion said, truly, this man was a son of God. See, that centurion understood something horrible had happened there. And that that man who died on the cross was who he claimed to be, the son of God. Tonight from Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, we're going to hear from God's messenger, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to hear him explain what occurred during that cruel tragedy of Calvary. What was really going on there? Now, the context of this passage in Romans 5, 6 through 8, we preached this on Sunday. We saw five certainties that follow our justification, our, our becoming right with God or being declared by him instead of guilty, law-abiding. We saw that it's only possible through Jesus Christ, through our faith and his sacrifice in our place. Well, verse 5 ended with the fifth certainty, and 
It's that the believer's hope, their certainty, their expectancy of being glorified, it wouldn't leave them embarrassed. And here's the reason why. It says in verse 5 of Romans 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, we know that this confident hope of belonging to God and being transformed into the image of his son is not going to leave us ashamed because of how God has poured his love toward us into our hearts through his spirit. Now, this outpouring of love is a subjective experience. It's the work of God's spirit through which we know God's love. But this subjective experience doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's not just us simply trying to feel God's love, trying to empty ourselves of other thoughts or some kind of like Luke Skywalker feeling the force kind of experience. Romans 5 verse 6, we're going to read in just a minute, begins with four. See, what follows and what we're going to look at in, tonight in verses 6 through 8 is the, is the objective grounds for this subjective experience of God's love. See, God's children experience God's love by God's spirit as they feast on God's truth found in God's word. Truth is the fuel for the saints' spirit-ignited experience of God's love. And that's my prayer for tonight, that God's spirit will use the truth of his word to ignite our hearts, ignite our hearts with love for him. So I'm going to read to you Romans 5, and I'll start in verse 5, and we'll go to verse 8. Paul writes, and hope does not disappoint. And this is the hope that will be transformed into the glory of the image of the Son of God. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Then verse 6, 4, here, here's the ground of that love. While we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Tonight, from Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, we're going to see four aspects of Christ's death so that we can experience the truth of God's love, even as we are shocked by the horrors of Calvary. And really what we read and, and, and what, what, what Peter read and Tom read, what Jeremy read, is, is shockingly horrible. As God the Son, the perfect God of Son, went through such injustice. But tonight, Romans 5, 6 through 8, we're going to see four aspects of Christ's death so that we can experience the truth of God's love on this black, horrible backdrop, the worst thing that has happened in all of human history. So let's look first at the first aspect, the purpose of Christ's death. The purpose of Christ's death. Paul focuses our attention on the most profound mystery with one small word. We see in verse 6, it says Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8, it says Christ died for us. It is a, a, a preposition. The Greek word huper, huper, and translated into the English for. It's a small word, but it is theologically packed. 
It is a grace-infused word. And I had to weed out the number of verses I wanted to bring in here because there's so many verses that cling and that hinge on this little word for. It means on behalf of someone or for their good, for the sake of someone. Maybe some of you in the in the current crisis we're going through have called an older neighbor or maybe a friend and asked if you, as you go to the grocery store, can go on their behalf, if you can get something for their good. You've gone and, and shopped for them. That's a little bit of what this word means on behalf of someone. The word has a sense of not just doing good for someone else, but doing something in the place of someone else. The word could be used, and it was in the context of sacrifice, of something dying in the place of something else. In Hebrews 9, 7, uh, the author of Hebrews talks about the pattern in the Old Testament of the high priest. Hebrews 9, 7. The high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, a sacrifice, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. A sacrifice offered for himself. Ephesians 5, 2. It says, walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, for us, who pair for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There's that sacrificial language being used with that preposition for. See, this Greek preposition used many times with the death of Christ. And near, it's nearly impossible, as you read it, to distinguish if it's used as the focus for our good or in our place as a sacrifice. And, and, and you can't distinguish, really. Now, normally, as I mentioned earlier, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of Good Friday. The Lord's Supper is a physical reminder of Christ's body broken and his blood shed. Well, listen to what Jesus said on Passover. He would have celebrated that on Thursday night before his crucifixion on, on, on Good Friday. Luke 22, verse 19. And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, in your behalf, for your good, in your place. Or Mark 14, verse 24, speaking of his blood. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many in the place of many. And that is what happened on the cross. The body broken, the blood shed for many in the place of many. Jesus taking the punishment of sinners upon himself. Now, like I said, I had to weed out many of the verses I wanted to, to use, but I think I boiled it down to a few, which blows our minds and breaks our hearts. Like Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that is the purpose of the death of Christ, that he gave himself up for me. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us in our place, in our behalf as a substitute. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus was cursed in our place by God the Father 
for sinners on our behalf. Second Corinthians 5.15, the, 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 the translator brings out the sense of on our behalf by using those words for this preposition. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf for them in their place. He rose again for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the good news continues. The purpose of Christ's death. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin to take the punishment of sin on our behalf in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what a great exchange that he would become sin in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become declared righteous, acceptable to God, welcome in his presence. And this is the purpose of Christ's death. First Peter 3.18 and one more. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. The just in the place of the unjust. The just for the good of the unjust. The just in the behalf of the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. And that is the purpose of the horror of Calvary, to bring us to God so that our hearts can be eternally satisfied in worshiping and knowing God. Peter continues in 1 Peter 3, 18, having been put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Not that he didn't come back to life in the flesh, but a new kind of life he was brought back to life. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came, so that the just, the perfect, could give his life for the unjust, for sinners. That is the purpose of Christ's death. We see that one aspect there, and this is, this, this is how we know the love of God, the purpose of Christ's death. But we also see the timing of Christ's death in verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, in a sense... It was the right time in the history of Israel. It was the right time in the stage of the world. I mean, think about Israel at this point. Israel had already rejected a long line of prophets that God had sent. And now they rejected God's own son. The Pharisees, the ones who had tried most rigorously to ever prevent God's judgment coming upon them again. They tried to prevent that by, by, by rigorously keeping the law. They were the ones who orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ. There was going to be no hope in Israel itself. But neither was there any hope in the ancient world. Empire had, had replaced empire and Caesar had followed Caesar. And all the philosophers and all the artists and all the poets had done nothing to rescue men from judgment. The world had been revealed at completely bankrupt at saving itself. Completely empty at improving itself. It was the right time in the history of the world. It was the right time as well in the life of Christ. See, Jesus, through all 33 years of his life, had demonstrated a perfect obedience to the Father. He never failed when tempted. And so here we see Jesus, as, 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 as the men read, going through this rejection and this torture and this mockery. And still Christ continued to do the Father's will. 
He had shown his sinlessness, his perfection, his ability to take our sacrifice. And, and that's maybe part of this at the right time too. But primarily, it's at the right time in the fullness of God's plan. See, God had previously poured out his wrath on those who deserved it. It is what happened at the worldwide flood. It is what happened on Sodom and, and Gomorrah when God rained fire down from heaven. That was God pouring out his wrath on those who deserved it. But now it was time for God to pour out wrath in order to save, to condemn the righteous for the good of the guilty. And that is what happened on the cross. It was the right time for that to happen. See, this phrase really, or this idea had been used referring to all of God entering into humanity to save humans. In Galatians 4, verse 4, describes the birth of Christ. When the fullness of the time had came, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was the fullness of time that Jesus was born. Jesus began his ministry in Mark 1, verse 15, saying, The time is is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is here. The time is now. See, the moment of the cross is the answer to human history. The intervention humanity needed but could never deserve happened at this time, at the right time. And at the right time implies that what happened there on Calvary, what happened on the place of the skull, that horror was not God out of control. He was not out of control when his son died. The death of his son was no plan B. God wasn't left horrified like the disciples were, wondering how could this happen to our Messiah? See, God had chosen an eternity past to deal with Adam's sin through his son's sacrifice at this exact point in human history so that sinners could be reconciled to himself. This was all in God's plan. And that is our second aspect, this is the timing of Christ's death. We saw the purpose of Christ's death in the place of sinners. We saw the timing of Christ's death in the fullness of time at the right time. And now we're going to see the beneficiaries of Christ's death. Who benefits from Christ's death? And you have to ask yourself, is it me? Am I the one who benefits from Christ's death? See, Paul answers this question of who benefits in three ways. In verse 6a, he says, well, we were still helpless. In verse 6b, in the second half of verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then at in the end of verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So let's look at each of those first. While we were still helpless. That word helpless is often used of frail humanity, of weakness, sometimes of sickness. It's someone who's trying to do something that they don't have the strength to do. They are helpless. A few weeks ago, I hurt my back. It, you know, that kind of hurt that hurts so bad, but yet you're still kind of laughing because you find yourself not being able to get up. I need to help to get off the couch. I need help to get out of bed. I was helpless. The focus here isn't on our physical helplessness, but on our moral weakness. We were morally paralyzed and capable of doing one good thing. We were blind even though we were confident of sight. We had flatlined, but we thought that our hearts still worked, that we could still love rightly. 
see, but the reality is that we were helpless. We were powerless to escape the dominion of sin. We were powerless to escape the doom of death. We were powerless to escape the deceit of Satan. We were helpless. And Paul says, well, we were still helpless. It was before we made any movement toward God. Morally, we didn't even want to get off the couch. At the right time, it says in verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. So he describes us as helpless. That's who the beneficiary of Christ's death is, someone who is helpless and someone who is ungodly. Ungodly, it says at the end of verse 6, at the right time, Christ died, who pair for the ungodly. The ungodly, the impious, the irreverent, those who disregard God. It's those who refuse to give God what he deserves. Those who really ultimately refuse to acknowledge his existence as he truly is. Romans 1 verse 21 describes humanity that though they knew God, they did not honor him or give, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened and they come up with all kinds of craziness to worship instead of God. And that is ungodliness. Have you ever felt the injustice at, at seeing someone in your neighborhood walking their dog and whether it's your yard or someone else's yard, that dog goes on that person's yard and they do nothing to clean it up and you feel injustice at that. And the person comes by and they do it again the next day and again the next day. And you're like, what's wrong with this person? That feeling of injustice is right. But how much greater is the infinite injustice that God suffers every second that ungodly disregards him. And that is what we do in a sense. The earth is God's lawn. And with our sin, we, 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 we do horrible things to it. The ungodly reject God's law. Listen to what how Paul describes this earlier in Romans 1, verses 28 to 31. It's horrible. This is us, the ungodly, who we were before Christ Jesus. If you are not yet in Christ Jesus, this is you, friend. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And that is how God describes the ungodly. We were the helpless, we were the ungodly, and we were sinners. It says in verse 8, And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners are those who don't submit to God's standard. Now, we know that we're all sinners, but to use that language, it's used of those who know that they are in conscious opposition of God. That, those, that they are those who disobey God's laws. It describes in, in, in Scripture again and again in the Gospels, those who are tax collectors and sinners, everyone knew that they disobeyed God. They knew that they disregarded God. 
Matthew 9, verse 13, Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is looking for those who know they are sinners. See, when sinners look in the mirror, they know that they're not good people. They know that they're helpless. They know that they're ungodly. And so Paul's point is when he says that Christ died for sinners, it is for those who know that their moral appetites are twisted and that they want what's wrong. They crave what God refuses. They are those who resent God's law, that they are those who reject his commands and those who pursue independence from him. They are those who organize their lives around the worship of themselves. That is what a sinner is. But these are the ones for whom Christ came to die. These are the beneficiaries of Christ's death. These are the ones that he came for in the place of. Does that describe you? Are you helpless? Are you the ungodly? Are you the sinner? That's good news. If you are saying, yes, that is me, then Christ came to die for sinners like you. And there is hope for you. And you can turn to him and be saved. There is no salvation for any who think themselves righteous. If you're like, no, that doesn't describe me. Now, some of you now can look back and say, you know, that was me, but God's changed me. And we are those who celebrate Christ dying in our place. And that is what saving faith does. We know that we are the justified, those who've been declared righteous, those who are whole, held not guilty for all of our ungodliness and all of our sinfulness. But I do want to reach out to you tonight to plead with you if you know that you are still a sinner, that you are still helpless, that you are still ungodly. Turn and be saved. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He justifies the ungodly through faith. You can look to him and be saved. We are those for whom Christ died. We are the beneficiaries. We are those who are the helpless and the ungodly and the sinners. So we see the purpose of Christ's death, that he came for sinners. We see the timing at the right time. We see the beneficiaries, the ungodly, the sinners. We also see the love of Christ's death. We see the love of Christ's death. It says in verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now in verse 7, Paul makes the case that God does not love like humans love. And he talks about humans love in verse 7. He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. And I think that Paul is saying here in, 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 in verse 7, he's making a distinction between righteous and good. And, and for the sake of contrast and argument, he's saying that someone is more likely to die for someone who has personally done them good than someone who is abstractly a, a law-keeping religious person. So you may have respect for a law-keeping person. You may have respect for a just person. And yeah, well, they're a good person. But you have an emotional attachment to a kind person, to someone who does something for you. 
But still, Paul's point is, one will hardly die for righteous. Scarcely ever would one human die for a righteous person. Perhaps it would be rare and it would take daring, it would take bravery. Someone might die for a good person, someone who does them something good. But God's love is not like our love. See, the best human love can do is die for a spouse or a child or a fellow soldier. But that's not how God loves us. See, God is not like us. And that's the point that Paul's making in verse 7. God is not like humans. God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Humans do not sacrifice for their enemies. Human history is, is the history of making weapons to kill your enemies. But that is not how God loves us. John Stott says, the degree of love, the extent of love is measured partly, and he's going to say two things, by the costliness of the gift to the giver. How much does it cost the person giving? And then partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the ben of the beneficiary. Stock continues. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. And, and I'll say that again. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. God gave the infinitely valuable Christ for the infinitely unworthy sinners. God substituted the best for the worst. God gave the sinless for the stained, the sinless for the selfish, the sinless for the scoffers, the sinless for the sinners. He gave the priceless for those who had a rightly deserved price on their head. He says the wages of sin is death. We all, in a sense, had a bounty on us, and it was going to be our eternal death. But Christ gave the one, God gave the one who's infinitely valuable for us. God showed his love to those who weren't righteous, who weren't good, who weren't pure. And if that's you today, and it is you, then this is good news for you because God gave his son for you. God gave his son for those who had rejected his rule. For those who scorned his presence, for those who dismissed his commands, those who abused the gifts that he had given him of, of life and of love and of language and creativity. For, he, 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 for those that abuse those gifts, God gives grace to. He gives his son for those who willingly offer their allegiance to God that they fashioned with their own hands. He gives his son willingly for those who wasted their, their love on satisfying their own flesh. For those who spit in God's face. And that is what happened there on the cross. Sinners spit in the face of God the Son. And these sinners are the ones that God gave his son for. Well, we were those kinds of sinners. Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And this is love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His son to make atonement for sins, his son to bear the wrath of our sin, our sins. His son to stand in the place of the wrath that we deserved. His son to extinguish the wrath that we had coming to us. This is love. This is how God demonstrates his love to sinners. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Are you the sinner? Are you the ungodly? Are you the helpless? Christ died for sinners. God is demonstrating his love toward you, sinner, by sending his son to die for you, sinner. Will you come to Jesus to be justified, to be declared righteous? Will you come to Jesus to be forgiven? Will you come to Jesus to be saved? Will you come to Jesus for cleansing for a new heart? Will you believe in him? Children in your homes, will you come to Jesus to be saved? Teenagers, will you come to Jesus to be saved? Those who've been pretending for years, will you come to Jesus to be saved? God is demonstrating his love for sinners. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As you have time tomorrow, I'd like to encourage you to read through just one of the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus. Tonight we read through some of Mark. So whether Mark or one of the other Gospels, if you can, read it through with your family. And imagine what the disciples felt the day following the crucifixion of Christ. Imagine the horror that they felt. But don't stop at the suffering of Christ. See, the disciples didn't understand what God was doing on the cross. But you tonight do. I see all they experienced every time they, they closed their eyes on that Friday night, every time they closed their eyes that next day on Saturday when Jesus was in the tomb, all they experienced was, was the horror of what they had, had seen and how the shame of having left Jesus when you read the death of Jesus, you'll see the horror and you'll probably feel the shame knowing that he was taking the punishment of your sins. But you, for whom God's spirit has poured out his love into your hearts, will also experience by God's grace the Father's love. So go and read through one of these gospel accounts and see the Father's love for you demonstrated. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrate his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves the helpless, the ungodly, the sinners so much that the horror of Calvary took place. Let's pray. Father, we are just deeply humbled um, and confess afresh, Lord, 
that without you, without your intervening in this world at the perfect time, at the right time, that we would have no, no place to stand, that we would spend eternity trying, in a sense, to extinguish your wrath and finding no satisfaction because we are the helpless and we are the ungodly and we are the sinners. We are those who deserved such punishment. Oh, we thank you for your heart of grace, for what you had planned in eternity past. And we praise you, Jesus Christ, for your willingness to take upon yourself our sin to become cursed in our place, to, to allow your righteousness at your Father's plan to be exchanged for our sin. We rejoice, God, that you have done this by sending your Spirit to awaken our hearts that we have faith, Lord, that when we hear this good news, that our hearts are humbled and contrite and broken. And, 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 and that we feel the weight of our sin, and yet we just don't grovel. We, we, just, we just don't, we're just not crushed under it. But that you, in your grace, through your spirit, work in our hearts so that we lift up our eyes to the cross. That where you have lifted up your son as the only hope for sinners. We praise you, Father, and that's what we do tonight on this Good Friday. Uh, we, we, we've done it for as long as we've been saved. We keep looking to Jesus Christ as our only hope. And what we see there is, is not just the horror. It's not just the, 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 the shame, not just even our shame, but we see your love. So, Father, we rejoice that you demonstrate your love toward us in everything that your son went through in our behalf. We, we are not worthy, but we are so thankful of justification to be declared righteous, to be welcomed in your presence, to know that your son did not stay in the grave, but that you resurrected him, to know that he is our great high priest, um, to know his, his mediation, Lord. We are so loved by you, and I pray that your spirit would, would, would help us to know more of that love, more fully. And I pray that, that, that it would be communicated that your love for us through your spirit, through this, through this truth, through this weekend, but not just stopping this weekend into the next week, Lord. And Father, we do pray for those uh, sinners, for those helpless, for those ungodly who were just like us, Lord. Oh, Father, do what only you can and open their eyes so that they would see the extent of your love in the horror of the cross and that they would come willingly to be saved. Father, may they come urgently. May they come tonight to find refuge for their souls. Oh, we love you, Father, and we are so undeserving of your great grace to us. Thank you, Father. I, I thank you that we can express our love for you now in song. In Jesus' name, amen.